When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for today's interview with Avi Steinman, who is CEO, founder, and director of Academic Language Experts. Tomorrow's a big day, because as of tomorrow, by decree of the Worldwide Federation of Scholars and Scientists in Stockholm, all research shall be published in North Germanic. The deliberation has been long and fraught, and much consideration has gone into deciding precisely which North Germanic dialect best suits the part of new medium of international scholarly and scientific publishing. Linguist favorites ranging from the conservative Norse of Icelandic all the way to the largest community of North Germanic speakers in Sweden, but ultimately the decision was for Bukmal, that variety of Norwegian which no one really speaks, but was judged and even compromised between the dialect extremes available. So tomorrow, the 15th of October 2021, marks the day. It's in Bukmal, or else your research does not get heard. Okay, I'm joking, and you know that. This has not been some kind of Orson Welles' War of the Worlds moment on radio. Nonetheless, I hope I got you thinking, even if just for a second, about the arbitrariness of the language standards everywhere, and especially in scholarly and scientific publishing. Just imagine if you happen to be one of my American listeners, or in any case happen to be someone whose primary language is English, just imagine what this crazy Buchmal scenario would mean for you. Swat up on Buchmal, get your kids in Buchmal courses, young extra hours on that book manuscript or on the article just to get the book more right and perhaps added costs to your research project for editing or translating services, never mind the added time to get this extra writing labor done. The majority of scholars and scientists across the globe do not have to imagine this scenario because for the majority of scholars around the world, this scenario is reality. Their book mall is English. For very, very many people, language courses, language services, language worries, all this is part of their jobs. The systems and the markets to help scholars and scientists use English for their research purposes are everywhere. Universities have language instruction and writing centers. Book titles with the words academic and English appear year after year. 
and office services provide translating and editing assistance on projects ranging in size from the 200-word abstract to the 500-page book. There's a lot out there. If your first language is not English, but the language of your research is English. A lot, a lot. But not all of it's the same. And that's partially a good thing, partially a bad thing. It's good because variety can offer people greater chances of finding what they need. It's bad, though, because certain standards of quality and integrity cannot be met if writing courses and translation services and communication training are being taught in any way by anybody for any reason. That is bad. Therefore, it's good when you find a standard among the educational institutes and private firms who work to help research make its way into English. The subject of today's interview, Academic Language Experts, is one such standard. Authors everywhere who must publish in English find an Academic Language Experts, a service that brings expert translators and translator experts to the job of making research conceived and written in another language appear as research that was conceived and written in the book mall of today, the English language. And CEO, founder, and director of Academic Language Experts is Avi Steinman, my guest here today. So let's begin today's episode. Avi Steinman, academic language experts. Avi, welcome to Scholarly Communication. Wow, Daniel, that was quite the intro. I have to say, I don't think I've ever laughed so much during a, uh, had to hold myself back. I uh, don't think I've ever laughed so much during an intro uh, to myself. So I um, I greatly appreciate, first of all, the invite to come on, but also, uh, you know, the the tongue-in-cheek humor that you're, that you're adding to this to this topic, I think on the one hand, it can be uh, quite a painful topic for some scholars, especially scholars who are contending with this on an ongoing basis, uh, but also a very important uh, topic to contend with and to consider and to think through. Um, and, uh, and, and and you've illustrated that in quite a, uh, quite a clear way. Well, thanks. That's great. And, and, and let's dive right into that aspect of it. So the, the larger area of English being the predominant language in um, very many areas of research, really the language in, say, the STEM fields. Um, and, and, and I'd like to ask you, with your experience and, and, and your um, work in author uh, services, what would you say is the reason that you see authors seeking out academic language experts for? And just to just clarify that a bit, I mean, by the reason, what is the perceived problem that they tend to come to you with? And maybe then what is also the real problem that uh, academic language experts ends up helping them with? Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there. Um, First of all, I think you're right in saying that English is the lingua franca um, of academic publishing um, today's day and age. So, uh, and there's a lot to, you know, consider if, if that's the way it should be or if not. I think that very obviously um, there is a value in having uh, one language of communication so that in a particular field we can agree on terminology, we can agree on uh, some of the basic foundational principles of how we are going to express and convey the research. And if everyone was doing it uh, in their own language, I think it would turn into a Tower of Babel um, where no one would understand each other. So I think that everyone understands the value and uh, the rationale of having one central language or maybe a handful of languages uh, to publish in. That being said, it creates a number of problems and challenges along the way. Uh, the first challenge that I would, you know, uh, that I would consider is just the personal challenge on the individual level uh, for a scholar for whom English is not their mother tongue, uh, maybe English is their second language, or maybe even third or fourth language. Um, 
it's in order to you know academia especially in the humanities and social sciences requires us to really consider and be able to describe complex and and sometimes intricate ideas in a very nuanced way and when we are and, and, and that's enough of a challenge to do in the language that we were raised in if we're at being asked to do that in, a, in another language that can be extremely um, challenging and, and difficult the second major issue uh, that I see with you know it, all in almost exclusive uh, publishing in English and it's important to note that there are uh, bilingual journals and there are books that come out in other uh, languages so it's not entirely exclusively in English but the reason that predominant English um, can be an issue is that Sometimes the uh, the research is actually very relevant to the local population, and publishing in English won't do as much good uh, as as it may do as it may do in the native language. So I'll give you one example just to to, to drive this home. Um, we were contacted by a um, a scholar who was studying uh, poverty among children in South America, and uh, she was applying for funding for in order to get uh, in order to be able to translate her research into English. And I asked her a very simple question, which was, well, why aren't you publishing this in Spanish? And she, she said, you're right, I would like to, but I won't get credit or it won't be recognized to the same degree uh, on my CV when I'm up for tenure as it would in English. And to, and to her, that was actually quite the tragedy because really the people she was helping needed this and, and or the you know decision makers needed this uh, text in Spanish in order to do something with it. So I think that it's important when we're confronting this issue to, to understand the complexity, to understand the importance of having a central language uh, to, to uh, you know, kind of all be on the same page, but on the other hand, not entirely forget about what happens, uh, you know, when we, what we're sacrificing when we're not uh, publishing in multiple languages. And there are solutions, uh, you know, it, there are times where we can publish in different lang- in, in two different languages, and that, to me, uh, in, in most cases, that, that that can be seen as a positive thing. Um, back to your your question, in terms of how we help scholars. So the way I define it is quite simple. Um, what we are trying to do at Academic Language Experts is simply level the playing field uh, for. Uh, non-native English speakers uh, or for for scholars for whom English is not their native language. Um, and the reason that that you know that's so important to us is because we believe that science is best served when when everyone is judged based on the quality of the content of their material of their of their study of their research and judged for that and not based on uh, the quality of, of, of the writing in English um, that, 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 they, that they've taken on um, or that, that they're capable of. Um, in fact, in the literature, there's discussion about uh, what's called linguistic bias, which means that reviewers, um, most likely unintentionally in most cases, will uh, negatively look upon an article that has, let's say, non-standard English constructions uh, in it um, as opposed to a similar quality article from a scholar uh, whose mother tongue is English. And therefore, um, I think that we need to be, you know, all of us in the academic community need to be aware of these issues uh, because for those who can afford our services, um, it's great. We were able to help them, but we're not able to help everybody. And I don't think that good scholarship and good research should be overlooked simply because of the scholar's ability to write in, in, a, in, a, in a language that's not their mother tongue. And I'm glad that people are saying that because I think that that really matters, this idea of focusing on the quality of the research and and separating it off from the language question. Nonetheless, it becomes quite interesting. I would say if we took the spectrum from the 
hard sciences, the STEM area, through the social sciences, down into the humanities, um, it, it becomes very interesting probably to start to wonder, okay, where does the re- where does the research actually decouple from the language and where is the research very much the language? If we move over into the modern languages on the humanities side, essentially the research is text. So the text produced about the text is the research. <laughs> we start to get into really difficult areas of, well, okay, what is the substance? What might be the substance? Or what might be questions of just mere accuracy? Uh, are, are these concerns, notions, or, or, or thoughts that also occur to, to you and also your, your employees? hundred percent. And, and, you know, I'm sure you've heard the phrase, Daniel, the medium is the message, right? And, and it, it, it depends on what field. Um, I think that's mostly true uh, in the humanities and social sciences, whereby even with our own students, we will dock their score, the score of their paper, if it's not written in a, in a clear and coherent manner. So that's, I think everyone would, would see that, in, in, you know, as a legitimate uh, action. The question becomes, what if it is clear? What if it is coherent? But what if it's just that the, it's written in non-standard English or there, or it's even chock full of, of, of grammar mistakes? Um, you know, is that, you know, how do we handle that situation? On the one hand, I don't think anyone would accept, uh, you know, uh, as serious a, a journal that's going to publish um, you know, articles that are that are full of mistakes. On the other hand, um, the question is, the, in, the, in terms of the initial review, the initial um, uh, uh, decision of, you know, should it even be passed on to review? Um, are we willing to, you know, give a little bit more room for, uh, for scholars to be able to write in a way that's comfortable for them, or maybe to write an abstract in their own uh, language and then get it you know, and then have that reviewed. So, so I, I, you know, I, I think this is, you know, there's, there's obviously the ideal, but then there's also the pragmatic, uh, you know, journal staffs are, are, are usually quite small and sometimes rely heavily on volunteers and reviewers who are volunteers. So, you know, asking them to, to jump through hoops is also not so, is not such a simple, um, a simple thing to do. So I think that it's, uh, you know, it, it, you're right. The, the the part of how we part of academia is is also how we convey the messages that we're trying to convey. Um, and I think that if we focus on high quality writing, um, regardless of the language, I think it'll do everyone a, a a real service. Now, I'll tell you, we face we quite often face a dilemma in our own work, um, specifically with translating. And and I'll clarify that. Our company provides uh, translating services, editing services, formatting services. Um, but specifically, I want to talk about translation for a second. Translation is a very delicate balance uh, because on the one hand, we want to honor and respect the authoritative uh, uh, source, which is the source text, right? That is our, even though we are creating a, a, a new text from, uh, the, from uh, you know, really from, from nothing, uh, we are using the source text as the basis for our the construction of our translation, uh, which I think is you know is a basic requirement for a translator. However, that being said, no one wants to read a translation which is so literal that it can't be read in the target language, and therefore the translator must, um, as part of their job, uh, swap out some idioms that may not work uh, appropriately in the target culture. They may need to re write sentences that where the, you know, the ending becomes the beginning and vice versa. And they really need to make a lot of judgment calls, meaning translation is just a series of judgment calls about how do I convey what the author is trying to say in a way which respects what they said, but also in a way that the target audience um, can can understand, enjoy. And I think we've all had the experience, I don't know, Daniel, you'll tell me if, if you've had this before, uh, whereby you've read a text and within a page you say, this is translated. 
right? We, we call it translatees. We sense it. We feel it. We realize that the sentence construction is not natural. I mean, I think we want, I think everyone wants to avoid that. You know, there are, there may be times where, you know, we're dealing with delicate primary sources where, you know, more literal is better. But I, I tell my staff, don't be literal. Use your creative license. The author will check us. The author will tell us if we've gone too far. But to me, uh, I value the rendering of a quality text, which, which still honors the source um, over a more literal rendition um, that, that may be more uh, uh, technically accurate, but loses uh, some of the, you know, between the lines and some of the flavor. Uh, but that's a, that's up for debate. Uh, not every translator uh, agrees with that with that approach. I, well, I I really could only um, emphasize that I, I agree with the approach in in the sense that um, it really recognizes the fact that a disciplinary discourse is not necessarily English. Now, let me just briefly <laughs> unpack that um, and give it an example. Actually, I was at a, a forum for writing studies in uh, the eastern uh, in, in Eastern Europe, and found that uh, the Slavic languages, in their own languages and in their own fields, have an entirely different academic style than we would expect in those fields in, uh, in if they were in an English publication. To be very broad, the Slavic style is to save the important bits for the end. And by the end, I mean like kind of the last paragraph, right? Uh, an American mindset is no, <laughs> the other way around, right? I mean, tell us up front what it is that you're doing or what your interpretation is, why this matters, what's the value of the research. So right there, you've got a massive translation problem. I mean, if you literally take one-to-one a Slavic text, let's say, in some Slavic language, uh, you might be disadvantaging uh, this author. They've got a great translation, literally, but uh, is it going to serve their purposes for publication? Yeah, that's a that's a really great point, and I'll give you a few more examples. Um, Japanese is a great example of this. In Japanese uh, writing, and this is more of a culture or a educational style of writing, and less having to do with the words or the the vocabulary that's available. But Japanese academic writing tends to be two things. Number one is it's very um, it, it's very repetitive. Okay, so ideas are repeated in order to place emphasis on them, which is not something that you see in. Uh, English writing as much. And secondly, um, you have a lot of uh, Japanese texts whereby um, the writing is quite, um, uh, I don't know if I'd want to call it passive or very suggestive, right? So if in a typical article uh, in English, the author will write uh, the study, we found in the study that, you know, whatever we found, in, in Japanese, they may write something along the lines of, our humble suggestion is... It, uh, or, or, or we think that, and that might come across as uh, as a lack of confidence to an English reader. Even if we're translating it accurately, the reviewer may say, "Well, they don't actually know, right?" Because if they know, they would say they know. But they're but that's not it. They're just there's a level of humility that's a value there that doesn't exist. Um, that maybe or you know for good or for bad does not exist in the English writing. So then we have the question of, okay, well. We have a choice. Either we render it in a way which is, you know, which the English reviewer will uh, appreciate and understand and know what to do with, but but then betray the the source text, or we, you know, honor the source text, but then maybe reduce the chances that the scholar is going to get accepted because it's it's non-standard. So these are really difficult questions. I think you know the answer is simple, and that is really open lines of communication with the author and 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 laying out these issues, um, which is why you know when I speak to prospective clients. I tell them that you know getting the right academic translator or right academic editor is about a lot more than 
you know, their, their vocabulary knowledge or their knowledge of the language. That's the basis. But you need to understand what academic writing is. You need to understand the specific field. And you also need to understand the cultural nuances and differences uh, between different fields. Um, another example I'll give you is, is when we, we translate from Hebrew to English. So in Hebrew writing, it, there's a lot more uh, in, in academia, there's a lot more of a focus on uh, bringing in a lot of primary source texts. This is especially in the humanities, um, you know, in historical texts. There's a, you know, you can see a full page quote from a primary source. And almost inevitably, whenever I see reviewers going, you know, whenever we translate such texts and then it goes to review, the reviewers will say, you know, ditch half the source text, you know, like just, we don't need so much, you know, give us a reference, give us a citation, we'll go look it up ourselves. Um, and so obviously we, we, we give our authors a heads up about that and tell them, you know, they should consider even before they send us the text, they should consider these issues. But I think these are, these are really complicated, you know, ethical and, 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 and standard issues about, you know, how do we view our role as, you know, as author services or, or as, as, you know, helpers, um, what should the credit be given? You know, that's another question is what, what credit or what acknowledgement should be given to the translator and, and what, uh, you know, how we look at their role. I, I, I once had a, a project fall through a book, a book project fall through, um, because the author, um, the, the translator, excuse me, insisted that their name appear on the cover as translator, um, that they're giving credit for and the author refusing and everything else worked out. We had the contract ready. We had everything sorted. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I, I you know, my sympathies are, are on both sides. I understand that the author spent years researching and authoring the translator spends many, you know, much, much time, uh, reviewing and, and making sure their work is perfect and, and researching as well. So, you know, there's a lot of, you know, I'm not sure that everyone necessarily always understands the work that goes into proper professional translation. Um, but this is just kind of a small window into that world, which I think is, is quite fascinating. And there's two things that really jump out at me and we'll, we'll try it. I'll, I'll state them right now. We'll try to pick them each up. The first is this idea that you've just greatly illustrated for us, you know, for, for instance, the Hebrew text with the large quotations of primary sources is just not done that way in English. So, I mean, we're dealing with not just different cultures. We're dealing with uh, different modes of operations in the same disciplines in different cultures. I mean, this is this is fine-tuned stuff that you've got to keep in mind. And it's also present in English itself. It's entirely possible to have to translate from English to English. <laughs> I mean, if you've got a molecular biologist who's trying to speak to the broader area of the life sciences, he or she is going to have to translate there hyper-expert knowledge into a broader sort of scientific English. I, I mean, all these sorts of translations are necessarily possible. That's the one topic. <laughs> we'll just save that because I want to keep uh, uh, both the things in mind. You also make it so clear that author services are a integral part of the processes of research and publication, that we can't separate already out any more research from publication. I mean, they, they seamlessly go into one another and clearly author services seamlessly belong in both of those as well. I mean, you've just said you've got translators who are also experts in those fields. I mean, th this is, this is all finely intertwined, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, you know, it's interesting because I, I you know, I find that the worlds are small, meaning as, as, as large as our world is, when you get down into the nitty gritty, really what we're trying to do, our goal is, is to find an expert in your specific field to be able to help you with your research. Um, 
And what that means in practice is that oftentimes many of our translators and editors um, on our team are actually either academics themselves. So many of them are adjunct lecturers or they're emeritus professors who have retired but still want to stay involved. There may be postdocs. Uh, who are looking for their first position but really have strong language skills. Um, so you need a unique combination of someone with the requisite academic background uh, who can really do, you know, really understands the material. If you don't understand the material, no matter how brilliant of a translator or editor you are, you'll either do one of two things, either make a lot of mistakes because you'll have to take a lot of guesses, or you'll be very hesitant. And, and you see that I see this a lot with editors who they retreat back to just making sort of cosmetic, what I would call cosmetic changes, as opposed to real deep, um, thoughtful changes, because they don't know the materials well enough. And they're, they're, they're scared, they're hesitant, because they say, well, I don't know if what I'm, this change that I'm recommending is, is good, so I'm just not going to make it at all. Um, and I think that that's, that, you know, that, that's something that we try to avoid by matching every project with an expert in the field, um, who, again, like I said, some of them are academics themselves, others are translators and editors who have done advanced degrees, sometimes even PhDs and postdocs in translation and editing studies, uh, but are also closely connected to the world, to different, you know, subject areas and different um, uh, fields so that they have the ability to really give uh, uh, intelligent and helpful feedback. Let's not forget that for many scholars, especially in, in, in humanities and social sciences, um, it's a very lonely process and it can be, it can be very isolating to write an article. Uh, or to write a book for sure, and to do our research. And we're not always, we, we can't be our own editors. We can't catch all the mistakes that we're going to make. And over the course of a, a few hundred pages, we are going to write things that aren't clear. And we are going to, uh, you know, we are going to miss out, have logical gaps whereby we don't really, we can't really tell the forest from the trees and understand where we need to fill in or where we've given too much information or repeated ourselves. So one of the things that translators and editors that, that you know, that really are professionals and do a good job, one of the things they'll help you with is really being able to work with you to point out some of those logical inconsistencies. I've had plenty of cases where we have translators who even will point out factual errors and, and ask the, you know, obviously we always couch it in, you know, maybe you should consider uh, checking this uh, again. Uh, you know, obviously we respect the authority and the the expertise of the scholar, but it's always good to have another set of eyes and it's always good to have someone who is intelligent. I like to say that you could have 10 editors and if each of them is an intelligent intellectual person, they will be able to improve a text in some way. And obviously at a certain point you have to say, okay, enough is enough and and we have to send it off for publication, right? Can't edit forever. Um, but I think the revisions uh, process is really a critical process in in, um, in, 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 should be seen as part and parcel of the publication process. Um, and I think that what happened was is that it used to be the publishers would do this more. Um, and I think that the need for author services or for scholars to procure their own author services was less acute. And what's happened over the last few years, due to all sorts of uh, shifts in, in the publishing world, is that they are offloading the anything that's not essential to their work uh, or they're outsourcing it or they're just turning around to the scholars and saying, this is your responsibility. Um, it's very rare to find a, a publisher that will pay for translation or editing. It's very rare uh, to find a publisher that will do, you know, some of the work that, that used to be done in order to prepare a manuscript for publication. So I think that that all of a sudden made the need for external services such as ours uh, a lot more relevant in a short time frame. 
And, and I just can wholeheartedly agree with you on the ideas that you say about <laughs> revision. Um, I mentor uh, scientists at the uh, University of Heidelberg, as my listeners will know, and we'll go over a text over a number of weeks, yeah, of course, and it will be, you know, week six, seven, and I'll revamp another paragraph, and, and, and I'll often get the feedback, 90% of that was your ideas, and I'm like, we got to keep editing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, 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 just to speak to this idea that, you know, the editing could literally go on forever, or that, you know, I mean, it, it, it's not, and I'm not a scientist, it's not something that the author, he, him or herself, necessarily is in the best position to do. I mean, one of the, one of the sort of foundation stones of, of writing studies is that it must be done through talk, which is, you know, taken up in the tutoring form, mentoring form, whatever it might be. I, I'm glad you're raising that because I want to say there is a dark side to the, the to, there's a challenging part to our, to our work. Um, and I'll, I'll try and illustrate that through one example. Uh, we had a hospital that approached us, the optometry department approached us to help them with editing their papers. They were struggling with publishing in, in leading journals and they approached us to help them. And we came to an agreement and what ended up happening was we got so involved and we were so, our edits were so thorough and deep that when the reviewer came back with content related questions and issues, the authors turned around to us and said, okay, you're our co-author now, go fix this up and come back to us. Uh, and I had to you know, hit the brakes and say, you know what? We were so involved in the process, um, and I'm curious, Daniel, if you've ever had this, that it's important not to become a crutch. We want we we want to be a a you know uh, a lifeboat or a, a helper or a helping hand, but not a crutch. Um, not not a service whereby because you know let's ask a, a, a maybe a difficult question, Daniel, for the work that you and I do. What is the difference between what we do and the services online that will write your papers for you? Right, so. I think me and you have a very clear answer to that, and that is we are not writing anything from scratch, and we're very careful about ethical questions that have to do with writing for scholars. But when a scholar comes in and needs serious help and serious you know, revisions, so there does become a gray area point where you ask yourself, okay, at what point am I taking over? So we're very careful what, we, what we've done, and this is the way that we've solved it, and I'm curious to hear how you do it um, at the Writing Center, is that for scholars who we identify need more than just a language edit, really need you know someone to dig down deep, uh, we've turned it more into an academic coaching uh, sort of service where basically scholars can come to us and we will match them with an expert in their field who will have meeting weekly meetings with them where they will go over certain sections and give them suggestions and ideas, but not actually implement those changes themselves on every paragraph. Uh, rather make make sure the academic does it and then go over and, and give suggestions and input um, because I think it's really important you know scholars are under a lot of pressure I don't even I'm not even like I, I hope it doesn't come off as me pointing a finger at, at, at scholars I think that scholars are under a lot of pressure to publish a lot very fast uh, you know you won't get a it, it's like you know your, your advisor will tell you not to write any articles before you publish your dissertation but then if you don't write any articles you're not going to get a job so then where you know where, where are you left uh, you you kind of have to figure it out. So I think people have a temptation to use, to use shortcuts. And I think that that's the gray, you know, it's, it's important to understand that there is no expectation that you can do this by yourself. Um, don't, there, no one teaches how to publish in an organized way. I mean, I've started giving, you know, webinars on it, but I haven't seen anyone who's really taught this or any university has taught this in an organized and, 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 and you know, done well. 
um, on the on the one hand, um, and on the other. So you know, people kind of have to learn from getting burnt and 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 their own experience. Uh, and on the flip side, you know, it, it, it you know, so 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 I can understand a scholar who would want help. I mean, uh, you know, everyone needs help at one point or another with their research. Everyone needs another another pair of eyes. I mean, I send my own work, my non-academic work, I send out to editing um, in English and I'm in, you know, and I'm mother tongue English. So, so I think it's important to, to make sure that that line in the sand is clearly defined before, before we, you know, start out. Yeah. Th- this reminds me of a, a survey that you uh, conducted where you asked uh, people uh, in listservs and also amongst your clients about w- how they perceived the situation with English being the predominant language and what sorts of troubles did they have. And um, a, a loud response came that scholars are reporting back a lack of resources for editing assistance, whether that be in the area, as you've just um, mentioned, at universities where you actually learn these things next to your science, for example, or afterwards when when you're actually out there in the field um, researching and need to publish. Um, just to quickly sort of parallel your academic coaching to what I do in um, mentoring, they are very parallel. Um, th- that is my approach. My, 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 my instinct and my preparation for it, my, my instinct is to take a text and to fix it. I mean, <laughs> that's like, you know, it was once said of uh, James, James Joyce, who many will know, who wrote Ulysses, an impossible book to understand. It's like a map of Dublin. And his father once said of him that if you dropped down my son James in the Sahara, the first thing he would do would be to make a map. Yeah. So apparently he had this very geographical mind. My mind is sentence. You know, I, I just like to fix yeah. sentences. But this isn't necessary. This, this is very often not a good thing, right? You don't want to be approaching somebody who is... Um, either struggling on any level, be it the content level, the communication level, the grammar level, there's a million different levels inside of a text, and offer them finished products. They don't know how to get to that finished product, right? And my finished product might not be the finished product that they want. My goal at uh, the writing program here is to allow people to write as they need to and as they want to. So that is a long process. It is a coaching process. Much as you've just said, it's a standing back and allowing people to become aware of what their options are as they go and write. Yeah. So you mentioned you mentioned the report that we put together, um, and I'm happy to share a link to that uh, uh, for anyone who's interested in reading it further. Um, I think there's one word that sort of sums up the, the findings that we had when we spoke to scholars about their experiences. And again, these are scholars for whom English is at least their second language, if not their third or fourth, but are actively trying to publish in English. And that word is frustration. Um, there's just a lot of frustration. Um, and I think, I, I, you know, I think the frustration is obvious. I think it's, it, it, you know, like we said before, it's difficult enough to publish. And it's even more difficult when you're writing in a language that's not, you know, you're not your comfort zone. And, and we came up with, a, you know, and there are a few things that I think institutions, funders, journals can be doing in order to improve the situation. Um, and, and if it's okay, I want to go through them. Number one is I think that what you're doing and writing centers are, are critical because in the end of the day, as important as the service and as valuable as the services we give are, um, it's my hope that authors aren't just taking our edits and just passing them along to the journal, but are actually learning from them. So I think if you have the opportunity to actually teach writing and English in a, in an organized way via university, uh, um, seminar, I think that's ideal. I don't think it's being done enough. I don't think it's being done in, you know, well enough in, in, in different places. And I think that, 
that can definitely be improved. So that's number one. Number two is um, funding. Uh, funding for services, for author services, uh, is really important. And, and, and you know, for those who don't know, some of the European grants, uh, you know, Horizon and ERC, you can actually request as part of your funding uh, translation or editing. That, that's a line in your funding. So don't forget that when you're going for funding, include that because you don't want to come along a couple of years later when you've used up your funding and say, oh, how are we going to edit our article? Well, I guess we won't be able to and we'll have to send it in as is. That's not ideal. So keep it in mind. Funders are expecting it. Um, so include it. I don't think it's an exaggerated um, request. Um, I think university departments need to dedicate a certain stipend to every scholar every month or every year, let's say, uh, for a certain amount of publication and to help them along that process so that they can make use of services. And last but not least, I think one of the big frustrations uh, that scholars feel is that they get burned by, by poor translation editing services all the time. And I think the reason for that is, is because, it, you know, as opposed to almost any other profession, you don't actually need any qualifications to call yourself an academic translator or an academic editor. Uh, you could just hang out a shingle and, and put your name on a website and that's it. You're done. Uh, you, you know, you wouldn't be able to do that if you were a doctor or an accountant or a lawyer or any other profession. Uh, but you can, if you're a translator editor. So I think, um, scholars would do well with taking the time and sometimes, and that, that means that they can ask for a quick sample before they start the project. That's one way of doing it. Uh, it means seeing what projects scholars have, uh, these translators or editors have done. Uh, before you don't want to be a guinea pig. You don't want to be their first time working on a project in history, or their first time working on from this language set. Or you know, you want to ask them for their credentials, see what articles they published in which places, look at their work, and see: Do I think this matches what I need? Do I think that uh, it's really going to be valuable? And I get, I would say, I would approximate. I don't have exact numbers on this. I would approximate probably between twenty and twenty-five percent of my initial calls that I receive for work to be done are people who have gotten burnt uh, and said, you know, listen, I tried a cheap option. I tried something, you know, I found someone online and just, it was a disaster. Sometimes it makes it even worse. So I think that, you know, cheap can be expensive um, when we're not, you know, if we're not taking things seriously. Um, and it's important to really do the homework and do the research and find out uh, who it is that we're working with before we, before we get started. I think that's uh, fantastic. The idea that you know this this standard and and the advice you give is really going to be gold for so many people listening. I mean, this idea that yes, include uh, uh, money for services uh, when you apply for your grant. Keep in mind how it is that you then find uh, your author services. Uh, think of academic language experts. Clearly, we're dealing with somebody here who is open minded and considering the entire area of publication and research, not just out there to get clients and so on. I mean, that, that, that's, that's made entirely clear in that. In fact, to follow that up, um, I would like to pursue just a little bit more this idea of where author services find themselves, because I think about this a lot when it comes to mentoring and, and, and training as well, and, and clearly some of our areas overlap when we think of the uh, academic coaching, where, where they situate in the entire process, research, publication, and so on. Um, is there room there for collaboration with labs, publishers, or universities from your side? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I call us the glue, um, to be honest, because uh, you asked about research and publication, and I, I see us as the glue that connects those two pieces together. Um, and, and why do I say that? Because you generally, uh, scholars will come to us for help after they finish their research or after they've written at least the initial draft of their research and before they're going to send off for publication. 
So we are, we can be that connector to the point where um, we have made a very uh, a big effort uh, over the last few years to to build a network of relationships with publishers, so that when a scholar comes to us and says, "Okay, I've got this manuscript, I want help editing it." And then afterwards, where should I send it? Right, that's a question I get all the time, and it's it, it, sometimes I chuckle because, especially when it comes to journals, because it's like, well, there's a couple hundred thousand journals floating out there in the world. I'm not sure I, you know, can tell you exactly which one, uh, but but oftentimes we actually are in a position to make some sort of connection to introduce you to someone uh, who can help from the publishing side. And I don't think publishers are trying to be distant or cold, but I think that sometimes authors can perceive. That it's publishers, you know, I have to fill out a form. I don't know who I'm dealing with. I might not get an answer right away. Um, and I think that trying to humanize and personalize that connection is, is part of how I have seen, I guess, the evolution of our business. I'm not sure that I would have seen it that way in day one, but now I understand that to be a critical part. Um, and as we grow from a, you know, what would typically be known as a, you know, business to business, right? Meaning we're helping individual scholars. We really pivoted and in addition, um, not at the expense of, but in addition to helping individual scholars, we are working more and more with institutions to try and help uh, both on the institutional side. So universities, colleges, think tanks, uh, you know, research institutes um, to help them better understand the publishing process, uh, get their texts into the shape where they can be ready. So for example, we have a uh, book proposal um, review uh, service that we offer, whereby we will take your book proposal, we'll review it, we'll give you suggestions and for how to how to polish it, how to make how to improve it, how to make it better before you get ready to submit it to the publisher. And then on the publisher side, you know, when we do have a good piece of research that comes through, we will try and 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 to the best extent that we can connect it with a publisher that we think is most appropriate uh, for the particular uh, manuscript that's coming in, um, because it is a global world and. Uh, not all scholars know about all publishers, not all publishers know about all scholars, and, and it's important to have those connections. So I think that author services, you know, on a very basic level, it's a language, it's a, you know, you can see it as a language service. I, I see it as much more than that. I see it as the bridge to connect between the author and their work and the ultimate goal, which is publication. And I, and I want to talk about that goal just for a minute, if it's okay. Um, I think that there are two goals that there are two things that happen simultaneously anytime we want to publish our research. First and foremost, the reason that most of us have gone into academia in the first place is because we believe in the field that we that, w that we're working in. We believe in the topic. We think it's important. We enjoy it. Um, and in order for it to have an impact, we really need to get it out there. And in order for it to get it out there, we really need to know how to publish. Those are the rules of the game, at least at least for now. Um, there are preprints. There are other ways to get our research out there, but it's still the typical way of, of doing things. So that's number one. But number two is on a much more pragmatic, practical level. Um, most in most colleges and universities that I work with, uh, publication is is put on a higher pedestal than teaching or than uh, uh, administrative responsibilities. Publishing is the end all be all. I mean, I think it, it's very heavily um, influences the rankings that come out every year. I'm not here to say that's necessarily a good thing. I think it's it's worth having a discussion about whether that's the way to go. Um, but so long as it is, um, it's important for, for, for scholars to continue pursuing. And one more thing I want to say, because I really think this is important. I don't think most scholars realize what percentage of scholarship is or, or, or submissions are rejected. I mean, in, in many fields, especially if you're talking about the top journals, you're talking about 80, 90, 95% rejection rates. 
And sometimes scholars lose confidence when they try and submit and they don't get it through. There's nothing wrong with asking for help. There's nothing wrong with getting another set of eyes to look over it. Um, and and also be aware that 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 it's a it's a long haul. It's a long process, and you need to be patient. And rejection is part of the process. And hopefully, if you're lucky, the rejection will come along with some reviews that are constructive and positive, and 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 enable you to improve. And in the end of the day, I think we're all happy if we're able to revise and have a better article as a result of of the review process. But I I am the first to understand that it's really frustrating and can get people down. So, you know, I, I think that's also something that I've learned over the years is that there's more to this than just technical grammar, what's right and what's wrong. There's an emotional component. There's a, you know, uh, uh, learning a certain level of patience. I always talk about having a cyclical view or a, or a, 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 whole, a wholesome view of the publishing process. I think that every scholar should have the following, and it doesn't need to be exact, but but some sort of concept of one article that they're in their mind that they haven't started working on it that they'd love to work on. One art, one one piece of research, one study that they're in the middle of. They're in the middle of completing their research. They're in the middle of studying it. They're working on it as hard as hard as possible. One article that's with a translator or an editor, or you know, that's being worked on by some external professional, and one article that's in review with the journal. And I think if we always have that healthy cycle of of, of, and, and it doesn't need to be articles. It doesn't need to be that exact cycle. But if we have that approach of we're not putting all of our marbles in, you know, we're not putting all of our, um, you know, pay, hope into one paper, but rather we're spreading ourselves out. We're continuing this and having a healthy balance between the different things that we're writing and, and moving from project to project. Then if we do get rejected, well, we've got something else or we've got a new journal to send to or we've got a backup plan. And it doesn't become a situation whereby we fear even the act of submission itself, because I found that that happens with too many scholars, um, and it and it's and it's unfortunate. I get it. I understand it. It's no one likes getting rejected, but I think it's important to to understand that more people feel that way than you you might think. And you've just given us a, a from your own experience and from from your thinking about this a, a wonderful whole view of 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 the publishing process. Of the teaching process, most scholars obviously coming from universities, of the researching process, and also of the human side of it all, that there's a person involved in that who doesn't want to be rejected, who, who sees that as a failure and uh, you know, has to deal with that challenge the next time that they go out with uh, another manuscript and think about, okay, am I going to try this one or not? It, it just makes entirely clear that author services, training programs, the research lab, the, the whole line of it is one working unit. And it's important for everyone to see that all of these parts are, in essence, equally important. Um, if I might, I'll just refer very quickly to a an interview I've had here, a, a book that's open access online, reading peer review. You brought up the whole process of peer review. There's another one of these components in there. And uh, the research that they did in this book, uh, reading peer review, was just really unique because they had such a huge cache of data from PLOS One of peer reviews, the reports, which are not things that are normally accessible. And they were able to analyze these and see what is it that reviewers are actually looking into. And of course, they're looking into all of the subject matter knowledge issues, how was the literature dealt with, the methodology issues, whether things have been omitted. They are 
expression was a major category, the language itself. And here, I'll just quote just this one sentence because it, it, it summarizes some of their findings in the area of language, and it speaks directly to what we're talking about now. I quote, clearly, though, it is also a mistake to regard the scholarly communications workflow as a steady linear progression from peer review through copy editing into typesetting before proofing and publication. This I, I'm, end quote. Uh, th this is a wrapped up process. Everyone is doing a little bit of everything. The researchers are doing a bit of their own editing. They're turning to other people for editing. They're picking up research issues, the people in the publication, and so on and so forth. It just is all one mix, and we need to see that, and we need to also cooperate on it, I would say. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I definitely see, I mean, in my experience, I definitely see a lot of peer reviews, um, and there's no question that that language or or clarity of expression is a big part of that and i and i think that we have to be you know i i get a lot of scholars who you know i speak to and say well you know my my english isn't perfect or you know my writing isn't perfect but it's good enough and i'll send it in you know as is um and i totally i, I get it i sympathize with that and you know no one wants especially if you don't have a budget for paying for these services, it can get quite costly. On, but I, I, I do want to, to make clear that I think that there are many journals and many publishers, no, not many, I'm gonna say all, that are overworked and understaffed. And as a result, what they need to do in order to make a determination of which research to accept and which not to accept is they sometimes need to use what I would call um, either superficial, uh, you know, criteria or aesthetic criteria, such as and 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 I'm not trying to say that language is just aesthetic. I think language can be an inherent part of the quality of of, of the article, but I also think that sometimes just whether the article has mistakes or does not have mistakes can be a criteria by which reviewers will make a determination or even desk, you know, even before it gets to review, even the desk editor will make a decision and say, you know what, we're not even going to bother because this is not, you know, edited or doesn't read with the same clarity. And what I always tell scholars is that, so first of all, we want to be aware of that so that we're competing and we're actually getting, you know, read properly. I mean, there was a study that came out that showed that most reviewers are only reading the title and the abstract and then moving on, which that itself tells us something about what we should focus on uh, when it comes to our own writing and how and how much time we spend on the abstract. Sometimes I get people to write an abstract, you know, five minutes before they submit, and I think that's a huge mistake. Um, so I think it's really important. But the way that I the, the, the way that I explain it when I'm speaking to you know to, to prospective clients is I tell them our goal is very simple. We want the reviewer to be to be critiquing the quality of your research and not the quality of your writing or not the, the ease of expression by which you convey yourself. Um, and because, and, and this gets really in, gets into, you know, studying the brain. It's, it's nearly impossible for us to do, try and decipher what is being written and consider the, um, consider the ideas themselves simultaneously. Um, I'm not a brain scholar, but I would imagine that we're using different parts of our brain when we do those things. And if the reviewer needs to dedicate too much brain power to trying to decipher what in the world you're trying to say to begin with, and this can be both because of languages, but also even if you have pristine language, but you're just not writing in a clear and coherent manner, um, 
can really have a detrimental effect to on how the how the reviewers perceive your research and therefore it's critical for the writing to be top notch um, so that you you know so that you really are guarantee for yourself that the reviewers are looking and judging the, the the content and the ideas inside of your study and not the what I would call the wrapping or the you know externals um, that may get in the way. I, I have I have to jump in there, and I, I wholeheartedly agree, and think that this is also an interesting idea that you talk about the the parts of the brain. I would even separate them out and say, this is going to sound a bit paradoxical. I'm going I'm going to say that communication is not language. And this brings me around back to that first uh, question I was asking about perceived problems from your clients and the actual problems that maybe your experts are discovering. This point that you make where trying to pick out from the ideas what it is that the reader is going to understand from them. So let's just call that, say, coherence in the text is not the same as correcting the language so that it's what we might call proper English. I mean, these things are worlds apart, aren't they? I mean, what you're doing is communicative streamlining far more than it is English correction. Uh, 100%, 100%. And, 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 and it's important for me to clarify that, that you know, we do all, we, we, we try and, and mark our services in a clear way so that those who only want us, you know, not every scholar wants us to, to, to necessarily, you know, get our hands dirty and, and really dig into the, the structure. So we try and structure our services in a way whereby those who do want it and do are self-aware and, and, and know they need some help with, you know, with sort of that, that dirty work um, can do that. And also those who just want a language review um, can get that. But it's, but even that is not always such a clear line, uh, you know, to, to be able to mark in the sand and say, this is this and this and that. It's funny because uh, um, when, when, when I get an email and, and they say they want editing or they want proofreading, my first question to them back is, well, how do you define editing? How do you define proofreading? Editing could be developmental editing, where I'm really looking at the whole body of work and seeing, should we be moving chapters around and restructuring ideas and bringing in new concepts that aren't there and removing things that are and, you know, kind of taking a, a sledgehammer and just, you know, chopping away. And then there, and then there are those that editing really all they need is just a proofread to make sure that the commas are in place and that everything is it's sound because their writing is already so so brilliant, and we wouldn't want to we wouldn't want to harm it. So it's really, I mean, obviously from experience, most people need most people that we're working with because English is not their native, you know, their English is their second language, need more more uh, more serious um, you know help. But but that being said, um, I think that it's really important to be able to have a clear definition of terms, which I'm not sure is necessarily you know out there um, before you start working with uh, an author services provider to make sure that you're going to end up receiving what you want. So on the one hand, it doesn't, it's not too much because there can be cases of, of over editing. There is, there is such a thing. In fact, one of the things that came up in our, in our survey that we did was that some, some English, some ESL scholars get frustrated because they feel like the reviewers are, or the, the editors are over editing their work. Um, but on the other hand, uh, if, if something needs a real, you know, serious edit, that it's not just getting a cosmetic touch up. Uh, it really warms my heart to hear an editor speaking with people who, uh, with whom they they're going to work and trying to define what proofreading is. I mean, that's what just one of those words that's just thrown around as if everyone knew what it was. I think if you cornered pretty much anyone from the modern languages department all the way over to the biology labs, 
you'd get a hundred different answers. And I, and I think that's also a sign of the sort of service that you offer, uh, that you take these things seriously. And, and speaking of which, we, we, we've, we've stayed on, you've given us multiple examples of how you help clients, and we've probably stayed on a rather abstract level. I'd be quite interested, though, to hear a bit about your um, digital presence, uh, your blog, and perhaps also the live interviews, which I've seen on your uh, page, and maybe just some of your day-to-day, what goes on uh, for you as the CEO of Academic uh, Language Experts? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that my wife would probably also want to know what I do what uh, what, what I do with, uh, with my day and how that's structured. And, and one of the fun parts about you know, kind of being an entrepreneur and starting my own business in this field is that every day, you know, can, can bring its own new excitement um, and challenges. Um, but what I would say is, so first of all, um, in terms of my own, you know, my, my own work, uh, I'm focused um, pretty, pretty strongly now on building institutional ties and b- building partnerships uh, with research authorities, with university publishers, uh, with think tanks and, and, and research institutes to really, like I said, sort of transform how they publish uh, on an institutional level, not just on a personal level. Again, we're not, we haven't forgotten the, uh, the you know, I'm, I'm very lucky and thankful that I have a wonderful and dedicated staff and they, they help every single scholar as if, as if it's our only project. In fact, if you go on our website, you'll notice that there are no big buildings, there are no big skyscrapers. It's all about individual service and individual touch and presence and, and, and having a real support uh, uh, structure to help you. Um, but my focus is, is, is working with institutions to really help them, um, improve their research and improve and, and improve their writing. Um, in terms of some of the other things that we have going on. Yeah. So thanks so much for asking. First of all, definitely, uh, we will leave in the, in the show notes, definitely encourage everyone to check out our blog. Uh, there's a lot of, we have both a blog and author resources. The blog is more, you know, sort of interesting, um, uh, articles that, that, that would be relevant for academics. The author services are more like practical tools. Um, so you'll find there how to select, how to find the right journal for your, uh, research, how to follow up with a reviewer after, uh, you know, you've gotten a review that you don't know what to do with. Um, you'll also find a guidebook, uh, you know, uh, on, uh, how to prepare a, a strong proposal for a book publisher. So all these things are free of charge on our blog, please. Um, Check in. The other thing that you mentioned is uh, we do monthly um, interviews. I interview. This is actually fun. I have to say, Daniel, this has been a lot of fun because I am usually in your seat. Uh, so we've traded seats uh, where I interview uh, leaders in the publishing industry um, about their work and about what it's like to publish uh, <clears throat> to publish a book, to publish a journal article. How do you make sure that your book can appeal to a popular audience? Uh, what does open access mean and how does that work? And all sorts of interesting and fascinating topics. Um, so I, and these are again, all free of charge. Um, all you need to do is, is register, uh, once a month. Um, and that's also on our website. We'll leave, uh, in the show notes, uh, it's called the publication success interview series with Avi Stamen. So if you look that up, you should be able to find it. Uh, that's again, publication success interview series. So yeah, I'm, I'm doing a lot of these interviews. I'm having a blast doing them, uh, cause I really get to speak to, What's been incredible, uh, Daniel, is that, you know, people I never would have thought would, you know, would open their doors. Uh, People, real leaders in the publishing industry have just been super gracious with their time and joined us and we've gotten great crowds out. And you know what the best part is, Daniel, I have to say, is just the representation from so many different countries that we have. And and maybe this like brings things full circle about your your example at the beginning about, you know, uh, (laughs) rare German dialects and... And, and, and what if that was the real, um, you know, what if that, what if we all had to publish that way? 
Um, and I, and, and one of the fun parts about this interview series that I've been doing is that people have really been showing up from everywhere, um, and, and, and participating and being active and joined us and, and being in touch afterwards. Um, and I think it really just kind of, that's one of the nice parts about zoom is that it levels the playing field and enables anyone to be able to participate. You know, if, if before you to go to a conference to get, to get knowledge, you'd have to go to a conference and, and pay a lot of money for a hotel and, and fly out there. Now, you know, you just, you need a computer, you need internet, um, and, and you can log on and, and participate. So, um, they're all free. They'll always be free. And, uh, I invite you to, uh, to come and check that out. I can only recommend them. I've looked through many of them. They're, they're great. They, 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 if you like this show, there's a crossover there as well. I mean, I'm all about getting out into the open about these things, transparency. Let's talk to the publishers. Let's talk to the editors. Let's talk to the scholars. And uh, Avi is, is doing um, fantastic work there. So, um, yes, it will be linked uh, below the uh, podcast here. Um Right. Uh, Avi, uh, you've been really generous with your time. I, I would like to send us off, though, with one last question. And we've heard so much about what clients get uh, at your services, so many of the interesting aspects that you're offering them in their work of research and writing. What about a potential uh, translators or people who are interested in editing? What would you say to anyone who was interested in that line of work? Yeah, I'm really glad that you that you raised that point. Um, I think that specifically your your audience um, could be relevant because uh, they're both interested in academia and in science communication. So I think that's like kind of a good uh, you know uh, there may be people who are listening who who would be interested. Um, I always say if you're talented and you're a good if you're a brilliant editor or a brilliant translator. Um, we will find work for you. We will. Um, you know, it may not be immediately, but we do work with a fairly large team of, of freelancers on a freelance basis, and we would be happy for people to reach out and um, and be in touch with us. Um, the you know the requirements are that we do ask uh, for individuals who have you know at least an MA uh, in their specific field, so that they have you know a certain academic uh, background, uh, some experience uh, in the field. And, and, you know, on a very basic level, Daniel, I find that the best translators and editors that we work with, they're just great writers, you know, and, 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 and there's a lot more to translation editing than just being a great writer. But it starts with that. If you love writing, if you enjoy writing, then doing translation editing can be a real, you know, just an enjoyable, you know, for, for some people we work with, it's a full-time job day and night. For some people it's on, you know, on the weekends and in semester breaks where they have more time available and, you know, we have no minimum requirement in terms of how much people work with us. So, uh, you know, if that, if that, if everything I've said so far, you know, strikes a bell in your head and you say, oh, that's me, um, then, you know, please do, don't hesitate to reach out. We're always looking for talented individuals. Um, we're growing, you know, by the month. And, uh, and that requires, you know, keeping up and making sure that we have really talented individuals. Like I said, it's usually one of two types of people, either academics who have a strong, penchant for language or, uh, you know, very strong linguists who have a close ties to the academic world. Those are kind of the two, uh, personality types or, or backgrounds that we're looking for that I, I think can really, uh, contribute. And, 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 and I like to think that we're really nice to work with as well. Uh, you know, we, 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 um, you know, the same thing that I said before about the personal side when it comes to working with clients, same goes true. Same is true uh, for translators and editors. Uh, we have an in-house team of freelance, uh, excuse me, not freelancers, but in-house team uh, that's reviewing and that's giving feedback uh, to translators and editors. So you know how you're doing. You know if you need, you know, uh, if there are places where you can improve or, or, 
or uh, or touch things up. Um, so it's a learning experience as well. So uh, it, it, that that's one option. The other option is if there are you know if there are scholars out there in the in the you know in the listening audience that say, well, I'd love to do that, but maybe I'm not there yet. We also have an internship program. Um, where you can kind of tag along with us for a few months virtually uh, and, you know, come to the, attend the meetings and be an active member of our, uh, of our team and kind of get, learn the ropes and learn what, you know, learn what tra- academic translating and editing looks like and, and what the publishing process looks like. Um, and we're happy to consider applications uh, for our internship program as well. So, uh, yeah, uh, don't, you know, that's, I believe that if you go onto the website uh, there on, and you scroll down to the bottom in the footer, there is a, uh, a button that says working with ALE. So if you follow that, you know, it should lead you to the promise line. Well, that is academic experts. And if you need editing or like to edit, that's where you go. Um, The CEO, founder and director is Avi Stamen. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Avi. Goodbye. Thanks so much, Daniel. It's been a real pleasure joining you today. And uh, I hope that we get a chance to do this again soon. Sounds great. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye. And until next time here on Scholarly Communication.